We have our second um, Bible reading, and Lucy is going to read that passage for us this morning, and it's taken from the book of Romans. So the second reading is from Romans 3, verses 9 through 31. Okay. Watch, oh, it's found in page 1179 of your pew Bibles. Okay. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the ways of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, and so that every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely uh, sorry, freely by his grace through the redemption that came from Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where, then, is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Thank you very much, Chris, for your warm welcome today and also for the opportunity to be uh, present with you once again. It's always a delight to be able to come to Surrey Hills. Uh, as Chris mentioned, I serve at the Presbyterian Theological College at Box Hill and uh, I might just ask you today if you would pray for us, please. Uh, the ministry of the college is something that, in a sense, takes place uh, beyond the site in many respects of the church. 
but nevertheless, uh, it's, it's a vital component of the future life and health of the Presbyterian Church of Victoria and indeed of Australia, as well as uh, many other denominations who send uh, students to us. You might remember that when Jesus gave his final instructions uh, to his apostles, uh, he commanded them to go out into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching, uh, baptising them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. One of the things that distinguishes Christianity from most other religions is that it is essentially uh, a teaching religion. Uh, there are certain fundamentals about God and our relationship to God uh, that we need to understand. And Jesus uh, entrusted a message to his apostles who in turn had the responsibility to entrust that message to subsequent generations of the church. And it's that process of entrusting passing the baton on from one generation to another, guarding the deposit of sound words that uh, we have been handed down from Jesus and the apostles that remains the priority in the church today. And so I, I ask you to pray for us as we seek to secure, as it were, not only the health of the church today but also the health of the church and the prosperity of the church and the mission of the church in the future. Uh, by guarding the deposit of the gospel and faithfully expounding the whole counsel of God. Uh, the future health of the wider church, future health of your congregation uh, depends on us doing that job well. So please pray for us. Well, again, it's a delight to be able to come back uh, to you today and to share with you... Uh, a message from scripture and I'd like you if you would please to turn with me to the 53rd chapter of uh, the book of the prophet Isaiah. Now, when Chris asked me whether I would uh, come and speak today uh, I gave some thought to what I should talk about and I thought it would be appropriate uh, seeing the Lord Jesus uh, shortly after his resurrection took aside uh, his 12 apostles and began to explain to them in the scriptures everything that referred to himself, perhaps uh, nothing better could be, or nothing better uh, would, be, would be better for us to do today than for me to do, in a sense, what he did by taking you back to perhaps uh, the most significant passage in the Old Testament, which announces... Uh, the coming of Christ, his sufferings, uh, his death, his resurrection and future glory, which we find in the 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah. This passage is significant uh, because, in a sense, it's written by people or it represents the thoughts of people who have had a major change of heart. They're people who, as it were, have stepped outside the crowd and groupthink and have formed a new estimate of Jesus Christ. 
Now, I mention that because one of the things that we're all prone to is groupthink. Uh, None of us likes to be out of fashion. None of us likes to stand out against the crowd. Uh, It's difficult to oppose what people regard as conventional wisdom. And it doesn't matter who you are, you're prone to that problem. Uh, Even people who think that they're, you know, scientific and educated are still prone to groupthink. About 160 years ago, uh, in Vienna, uh, there was a remarkable example of how people engaged in groupthink. At that time, uh, in the medical field, approximately one in eight women in Europe uh, died in childbirth as a result of puerperal fever or childbirth fever. Uh, No one was really sure why, but a Viennese physician by the name of Ignaz Semmelweis uh, determined by a process of elimination that the most likely cause was that physicians... Uh, were coming from anatomy rooms in the hospital and they were not washing their hands before they attended pregnant women who were due to give birth. In the hospital ward he ran, uh, when he insisted that every physician who was looking after uh, a childbirth washed his hands with antiseptic, uh, the mortality rate in that ward dropped to 1% of all mothers. But despite that dramatic uh, turnaround in the health of women, uh, very few doctors were prepared to accept uh, his assessment of what was going wrong. In fact, the whole medical world disagreed with him. They not only disagreed with him, uh, but they persecuted him. He was removed uh, from his position uh, as head of a hospital. Uh, He clashed with uh, a professor who had responsibility for that assignment and uh, they then ultimately took away his job entirely and finally at the age of 47 uh, he was committed to an asylum and shortly after he went to the asylum he was assaulted by some guards and died a few days after going there. Everybody today knows he was right. He saved countless hundreds, if not thousands, of women's lives in his own day and he saved millions since. But his ideas were rejected then. And in this passage that we're going to look at this morning, we discover how a previous generation a long time ago made another tragic mistake. They made a tragic mistake... Uh, by rejecting certain spiritual truths that would have ensured their salvation. And as a result of rejecting those truths, they brought calamity upon themselves as a nation. Now, in the passage before us, uh, we have one of the most remarkable revelations in the Bible. Of course, the Old Testament is full of some amazing revelations, but perhaps... Uh, This, in a sense, is the greatest of them all because it gives us the greatest insight into God's saving purposes in Jesus Christ. Here, uh, Isaiah sees quite clearly uh, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and its meaning for our relationship with God. 
But his prophecy goes further than actually seeing uh, the tragic death of Christ and then his glorious resurrection. It looks ahead to a time in history where God uh, will gather together the people of Israel and many of them will be revived and large numbers of them will turn to faith in Christ as their saviour. In fact, in the book of Zechariah, we're told uh, that in those last days, uh, many Israelites will come to look on the one they have pierced and they will mourn and they will make a true confession of their sin. And then in the 13th chapter of the book of Zechariah, Zechariah tells us that although many will still reject him, uh, a third of the nation will be saved. That is, a third of the nation will recognise that they've crucified the Messiah, the Lord of glory. They'll come to their senses and they will believe. And this third will understand what God has done for them in Christ when he died upon the cross and subsequently rose from the dead. And that confession that they will make is recorded for us here in this 53rd chapter. This is the confession that everybody makes, not just the Jews, but everyone when they come to their senses and understand what it is that they have done in their dealings with God. And so if you would please read with me uh, verses 1 to 6 of chapter 53. Here the prophet says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Now this confession of repentant Jews and Gentiles as well is arguably the most important part of the Old Testament. Interestingly, it it is written in uh, a very high form and quality of Hebrew poetry. It's interesting in a sense that it's cast in a lyrical form because we know that when we want to express our deepest thoughts and we want, in a sense, to cherish them and commit them to memory, uh, we usually resort to a lyrical form. We want to give special expression to the words because they are so special. And so the quality of the language here points to its significance. But interestingly, so does the location in the book. I wonder if you've realised that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit... Isaiah was led to place this confession in exactly the place that we find it here in the prophecy. 
When you begin to consider uh, its location in the book, you'll discover that it's no accident. I wonder if you realise that in the second half of the book, that is from chapters 40 to 66, Isaiah turns uh, his thoughts away uh, from many of the themes that he's pursued in the first chapter of the book. He turns away from the idea of the judgment that God is going to visit uh, upon the Jews and the Gentiles because of their sin. And he turns almost exclusively to focus on a coming salvation which will ensure their ultimate deliverance and not only their deliverance but the deliverance of the Gentiles and indeed the deliverance of the whole universe. Uh, It's a book of hope. Now as we look at the prophecy closely, uh, we'll discover that these chapters 40 uh, to 66 consist of 27 chapters that divide, interestingly, into three equal divisions of nine chapters each. And each of those sections ends with a common refrain. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. It's like a literary indicator that marks the conclusion of a section. The words aren't precisely the same at the end of the 66th chapter, but they're very similar. In the first section, uh, chapters 40 to 48, uh, Isaiah portrays Israel's rescue from its captivity and exile in Babylon by Cyrus in, in terms that actually transcend what happened when Israel did return from the exile. I think suggesting that Isaiah was looking forward to a far greater deliverance over and beyond the deliverance that Cyrus made possible for the Jews. Something is suggested that would happen at a future time that would be far more glorious than Israel simply returning to Jerusalem. Then in the second or or central section, chapters 49 to 57, uh, Isaiah sets forth this glorious redemption that is going to come to God's people as a result of the work of a special servant, one who is far greater in a sense than Cyrus. Because although Cyrus uh, can offer political deliverance, uh, this servant of the Lord will ensure that an even deeper and greater deliverance takes place. It will involve an individual salvation where people are actually delivered from their sins. Then in the third and final section, chapters 58 to 66, uh, we read how God's people will actually take the blessing of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And then, ultimately, God will renew the heavens and the earth. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth. However, and I think this is the important point, uh, the heart and the climax of the whole prophecy is found in the 53rd chapter. It's in uh, the inmost centre, as it were, of these 27 chapters. And the portion that falls precisely in the centre of those chapters is the portion that we're looking at today. Isaiah 52.13 to 53.12. Now, I wonder if you can see... Uh, as it were, 
evidence of God's design here. Uh, We've got three separate sections of nine chapters each in Isaiah 40 to 66. And then in each section, uh, we discover that it is divided into three chapters, or three sections rather of three chapters each, uh, each corresponding almost identically with the divisions that we have in our Bibles. Thus, the middle section in chapters 49 uh, to 57 is found in chapters 52 to 54. So 53 is the middle section of the middle chapters of the middle division of this book, Isaiah 40 to 66. And it's this inmost section, the middle section, in which we have this glorious messianic poem. And now wait for it. The central verse of this central chapter which begins in Isaiah 52.13 is Isaiah 53 verse 5. Let me read it to you. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. If you are wanting to know, as it were, the central truth of the Christian faith, uh, this passage takes it right to us. And the prophecy, in a sense, has been so designed that the light of the Spirit uh, shines on this precise place. In other words, through the mystery of the divine inspiration of the scriptures, uh, the Lord leads us to these essential truths of salvation, which ought to form the heart and the soul of your personal confession of faith. And this particular section of scripture will remind you of the kind of conversion that you need to have if you are going to turn to God and be reconciled to him. Now I want to consider with you just for a few moments uh, a number of elements of this confession. The first of them is this. When you turn to God, uh, the first thing that you need to do is confess how wrong you have been about Jesus Christ. Look with me, please, at the first few verses. Isaiah puts it like this. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, who has believed what we heard? Who has accepted, as it were, what we have proclaimed to them? It's a rhetorical question. It expects a disappointing answer. Who has believed? No one, or at least very few. And why haven't they believed? Well, look at the first few verses. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him, 
He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hid their faces. You see, in these verses we see how people looked at Jesus. And we see the various kinds of opinion that people in the first century formed about him. Opinions, in a sense, that are really no different to those that are carried by many people today. They looked at his beginnings and they were unimpressed. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. Who are his mother and father? The answer came back. Nobodies who had to get married in a hurry. Where did he live? In some little nondescript village in the outer blocks, as it were, of the country. What school did he go to? None that rated in their eyes. Jesus was a nobody from nowhere. They regarded him as a root that had been torn out of the soil and was just lying there. If any of you have dug up trees and you pull them out and you leave them on the ground, you know the meaning of a root taken out of dry ground. It has no future potential. While it was in the ground, it could give life and nourishment to the tree. But once it's out, it's dead. It has no prospects. And so people looked at Jesus as a person with absolutely no prospects. Like a root out of dry ground, he was useless. He added up to nothing and was of no value to anybody. And they looked at his life. There was nothing striking about him. It's interesting, isn't it, that in the Bible we have no references to the appearance of Jesus. But as far as the Jews were concerned, his appearance was unremarkable. You know, there was nothing about him that screamed out, Messiah. We're not told anything about his physical appearance, but we are told, for example, about David's appearance. David cut quite a striking figure, but we don't read the same about Jesus. And then his life seemed to end in a catastrophic failure. Uh, he was despised and rejected by all the important people in Israel, the religious leaders, the teachers. All those who were in authority rejected him. Uh, he couldn't even get a fair trial. He was denied justice and impartiality by the Roman governor. And then his end, well, that was beyond imagining. He was almost beaten beyond recognition. He was mocked, he was humiliated, and he was put to death in the most cruel way that has ever been devised among men. Got to hand it to the Persians. They knew how to kill people. In fact, the way Jesus ended his life meant that most people turned away from him automatically. That's why Isaiah says he was one from whom we hide our faces. I wonder if you 
realise that that's where you and I have to begin when we first confront Jesus Christ. We have to confess how wrong we have been about him. I grew up in a home uh, where God's name was only ever mentioned in ways that I can't repeat here. But I thought nothing of God. I thought nothing of Jesus Christ. And so the first thing that I had to do when I became a Christian uh, was to repent of all those things, of having despised him and having rejected him and esteeming him as nothing and of no consequence. That's what Israel's doing here. They're coming to their senses and they're saying, Lord, we have been so wrong in our estimate of Jesus Christ. Please forgive us. And that's where you and I have to come as well. He's far more than an historical figure. He's far more than a teacher or an exemplar. According to this prophecy, uh, he's the Lord of glory who came in human form and bore our sins in his own body on the tree. And we need to begin by confessing that. Now notice this leads us into the second element of the confession, which is an acknowledgement on our part that we have sinned, verses 4 to 6. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, the great truth that people resist today is not the existence of germs. It's the existence and the reality of sin. What people resisted then and what people resist now is the fact that we have an obligation to God which we have broken. Extraordinary thing about our culture today, think about this, is that several hundred years ago, uh, evil had a name, a face and an explanation. It was called the fall it was personified in the devil and it was attributed to the original sin of man committed in Eden and it was imputed to us all. But in modern times, what should have been an incandescent reality has almost faded out of our consciousness entirely. The whole notion of sin has been moved off the agenda. It's interesting that uh, the president of the American Psychiatric Association a couple of decades ago wrote a very famous book. His name was Carl Menninger. 
And he asked the question, whatever became of sin? And Menninger said, you know, isn't it, isn't it interesting in American society at the moment, we, we talk about things like crimes, we'll talk about dysfunctions, we'll talk about disorders, we'll talk about deviance, but we'll never talk about sin because to talk about sin introduces the notion of obligation to God. We can talk about civil disobedience, but we don't want to talk about disobedience against God. Apparently no one is to blame anymore. We've invented a whole new language today to talk about our basic problems and that language is essentially morally and spiritually evasive. But you see, Isaiah won't let us get off that easily. Because once we realise just how confused we've been about Jesus Christ and how wrong we've been about him, uh, we need to realise how wrong we are about ourselves. And here in verse 4, Isaiah talks about the consequences of our sin. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. You notice here how Isaiah is talking about the subjective effects of our sin. The effects as they impact upon ourselves. Our infirmities and our sorrows. We have to acknowledge that. In other words, we have to make a confession about the mess that we've made of our lives. I wonder if you've ever come to that point in your own spiritual experience where you are prepared to acknowledge that. I can remember the day that I did. I was overwhelmed when I began to realise how sin had woven, you know, this, this web in my life that had just covered everything and created so much trouble not only for me but for other people. Have you come to that point? I remember reading uh, of Charles Colson's conversion in his book Born Again. Remember Colson? He was uh, the legal counsel to President Nixon. He was subsequently charged with part of the Watergate um, affair. But as he as he became aware of his sin, uh, he went to seek out help, and he went to a man who was the president of a large company, an American company, a defence company, called Tom Phillips. And he went round to his home because he knew that Phillips was a Christian and he wanted some help to explain to him how he could get his life back in order. And Phillips began to talk to him about his sin and his pride and all the things that he needed to repent of. And after they'd finished the conversation, uh, Phillips offered to pray for him and then excused himself because it was late at night. Colson went out into the darkness, got into his car, turned on the keys 
and then drove down the road and hadn't got more than half a mile or a mile down the road. He just broke down. He had to pull over on the side of the road and there for about half an hour uh, he poured out his heart to God in confession of sin. He realised how sin had corrupted his life and how he defended God. And we need to do the same. This is the confession that you and I need to make if we're to turn to God. Now there's something else we need to understand about sin that goes way past our own thinking and our behaviour. We've actually got to make confession for our natures. Look at what Isaiah says here in the sixth verse. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. You might be asking the question, in what sense is Isaiah referring here to our nature? Well, he's telling us uh, that we act like sheep. That's interesting because although we've been made to act and relate to God in terms of the image of God, uh, here we're compared to uh, an animal and not an animal that's renowned for clear and careful thinking. Isaiah says we act like sheep. Sheep wander into danger. Our sheep often break away from the flock. Sheep go through fences that they shouldn't. They find their way through hedges. It's just part of their nature. If you've ever had an experience with sheep, you'll understand what I mean. In one way, the behaviour of sheep just doesn't make sense, really, does it? When you consider just how vulnerable they are, I've spent time on uh, a large property and it was a sheep property and uh, I've worked with some of the stockmen on it and I can tell you that I've seen sheep literally torn apart by wild dogs and foxes. I've seen sheep lying on the road with their eyes plucked out by crows. I've seen an eagle descend from one of the mountaintops nearby and grab a lamb in its talons and take it off. You see, sheep need to stay close to their shepherd or they meet with disaster. And likewise, uh, Isaiah says, we need to stay close to God. But we don't. Uh, We wander. Each of us has turned to his own way. That's interesting, isn't it? All of us have our own sinful tendencies. Each of us has turned to his own way. My tendencies may be different to your tendencies, but we all have our own tendencies and we all are involved in this evasion and avoidance of God until he touches our hearts. And it leads us into terrible strife It leads us into infirmities. It leads us into sorrows. And why? Because sin never pays. I wonder if you've ever noticed that tendency in yourself. And you've actually asked God, you know, to to deal with it. 
You've prayed to God to take your hold of your heart and draw you nearer to himself. Well, I pray that each one of us does today and that we'll return to the Good Shepherd. But finally, I want you to notice the third part of this confession, uh, which consists of what God has done for sinners. Verse 6. It says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You notice here how Isaiah says that God must actually do something about our sin. He can't leave it alone and he can't ignore it. He certainly can't tolerate it. Now, I know there are a lot of people who think that God can, as it were, look benignly down upon us and excuse us in the same way that, you know, grandparents, in a sense, can indulge grandchildren and just sort of smile, think, well, that's the parents' problem. (laughs) But the fact is, our sin is contrary to God's holy nature. Do you realise that God, by nature, by, by the very nature of his goodness, uh, is actually constrained to act against sin? See, if God doesn't do something about it, he, his own goodness, his own justice, his own holiness is suddenly under threat. Think about this. How, how can God actually remain good and holy and just after if he allows evil to run rampant in his world. You know, would you regard the police, for example, as good and as holy and as righteous? If when you picked up the phone and said, you know, there's been a murder or a robbery in our street, they didn't come? If somebody was in desperate need and they couldn't be bothered uh, to come and help, see, how can God be good and holy and just if he allows evil to prevail and go unchallenged in the world? The fact is that God is required by virtue of his very nature to deal with our sin. See, if you find that hard to understand, think about this. How would you feel about the state government if it decided one day just by decrees to open up all the jails and let everybody out who deserved to be there and from whom we ought to be protected? How would you feel if the government decided to abolish the courts and then dismantle the police force? What would you think of a leader who took those kind of actions and who decided to dispose of law and order? You know, we'd be outraged. Why? Because we actually want justice. We actually want good order. We want protection. And God wants that in his world as well. And because he does, he's faced with a problem. Uh, He loves those who have offended him. God so loved the world. And so if sin is to be punished and treated as it deserves, uh, the question is what will become of us? What will become of me? Will we be destroyed? The Bible tells us that the soul that sins shall die. But thankfully Isaiah points to us 
or points out a solution to us because here he tells us that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's called the principle of representation or the principle of substitution. It was something that was foreshadowed in the law so that the Jews were acquainted with the principle and it was deeply embedded in their consciousness. For every Jew who drew near to the temple, they had to come and offer a sacrifice. And on the great day of atonement, uh, they came not only with a sacrifice, but they came with a substitution. They came to offer guilt offerings and sin offerings. Uh, But in the 16th chapter of the book of Leviticus, we're told that not only did they come to offer those particular offerings, but there was the offering of a goat, one of which was to shed its blood on the altar. The other one was called the scapegoat, which was sent off into the wilderness after all the sins of the people had been symbolically laid upon it. And there it was to go out into the wilderness to be lost and to be exiled forever. And here Isaiah is telling us that the one who died in our place, the Lord Jesus Christ, has not only become a sin offering or a guilt offering, but he has also become the scapegoat. He carries your sin and he carries my sin far away from us. The psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he carried our sin away. I know some people don't see the justice of it. Uh, That hardly matters because God does and God's ordained it. The text says that God laid on him the iniquity of us all. And friends, I don't know about you, But I sure don't want my iniquities and my guilt laying upon me as I stand before God. The fact that God has laid it somewhere else is the greatest relief and the deepest consolation that I could ever imagine. God has accepted Jesus as the bearer of your sins and the question is, will you? I don't know whether uh, you're one of those who tunes into Downton Abbey. I suspect a few of you do. It's interesting, in a previous episode, Lord Grantham found himself in, in the deepest of predicaments. Uh, he'd been bankrupted by his own foolishness. And now he can only be saved by somebody from within his own family. who has the ability to bail him out. And that person happened to be Matthew Crawley. Matthew had the money and the means uh, to overcome this crushing debt that meant that the whole property would have to be realised. And isn't it extraordinary? Matthew hands over all he has to release Lord Grantham from his debt. And the property is saved. And the family, in a sense, is saved. 
at least save the embarrassment and humiliation of bankruptcy. You see, if you and I know our hearts truly, uh, we'll realise that we have a debt to God as well. It's a debt of love, it's a debt of perpetual obedience and it's a debt that can never be repaid uh, because we really don't have the means to honour our obligation. Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the good news is that Jesus takes up and carries that debt so that you and I can be reconciled to God. And so this morning, the question that you and I have to ask ourselves is this. Have we undergone that conversion to God, that conversion that we really need, where we change our understanding of who Jesus is and we come to terms with him as the saviour of the world? Have we come to see our own hearts and our own sin in the light of God's law? And finally, have we accepted God's provision? It's only when you and I do each of those three things uh, that we're changed in our inner being, that we're reconciled to God and we can know true peace with heaven. Let's bow in prayer. Oh God, our Father, this morning we pray that you would work within our hearts, uh, by your Holy Spirit, uh, to reveal to us uh, who we are and what we've done. Father, we are so full of pride and self-deceit. We lack so much true self-awareness. And we thank you for your word that is, as it were, a mirror that reflects back to us our true natures. Father, relieve us of our false thinking. Quicken our hearts, we pray, to confess our sin. Enable us uh, to make that good confession whereby uh, we set aside those sins and receive the gift of your Son who has become for us uh, that offering of substitution. And Father, as we do so and you release us of our guilt, we pray that we may experience uh, true joy and lasting peace deep in our hearts. Confirm all those things within us today, we pray, for the glory of Jesus' name. Amen.